Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there, I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. My guest today is Paul Churchill. He's the founder of Recovery Elevator. He's done an awesome TEDx talk called I've Been Duped by Alcohol and has written a book about alcohol being shit. I'm really excited to have Paul here. He says that his life has improved tenfold once he made the decision to quit drinking. He's got a really interesting story and a ton of awesome advice to share. But Paul also says that removing alcohol from his life fixed things that he didn't even know were broken. And I can't wait to dive into this interview. So Paul, welcome. I'm so happy you're here. Hey Casey, thank you so much for having me. It's it's great to great to see you. It's great to be here with you. You've got such an awesome project going on yourself. So thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh no, I'm so excited. I mean, I've been following the Recovery Elevator podcast for years. I know you said you started it early in sobriety as an accountability tool, but it's been what a long time that it's been going. And I know the podcast has like six million downloads, so incredibly popular. 
Time flies by fast. It does. Um, I, I, I first quit drinking on September 7, 2014. And that current run is is going. That's that, that's my current streak right now. And then I had the idea about two months after that, I was going to an AA meeting. Uh, this is October of 14. And I said the three most dangerous words somebody with a drinking problem can say is, I got this. Yeah. And um, I turned around. And, and that was, two, my, did you say that was two months in? Yeah, it's two months in. You're like, oh, oh you know, I've, I'm, yeah. I'm good. I've, I've got days, this. man. And I remember telling myself I'm too busy for this AA meeting that I was going to go to. And I was hiding behind a pine tree just because the stigma. I didn't want anybody to see me. And I, I turned back to walk to my car and I stopped in my tracks. I don't know when I recall that moment, it was almost divine or whatnot. I just, I knew there was this moment of stillness inside me, moment of peace. And I knew if I got in my car and I didn't go to that meeting and I, and I just, and I believe that I got this, I knew that I'd be toast. And that summer of 14, Casey got really grim. I had a, had a DUI while driving to work, a failed suicide attempt. I spent the night in a suicide proof jail cell. Um, it was just like one rock bottom after another emotional rock bottom. Death. It was brutal. So for two months into it, for me to say, I got this right. Those are, those are false statements. And so I knew I had to do something different and I, I love podcasts. And I had the idea at that moment behind that pine tree of shame <laughs> for a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and then I was like, oh gosh, this is a big one. So I met with a friend of mine who's a YouTuber. His name's DIYP. And he advised me and said, if you're going to do this, uh, I think it's a good idea, but you got to be ready to fully put yourself out there. Um, I went on about a 4,000 mile road trip from Seattle to the the Mexican border on the PCH beautiful drive. And I, I live mapped in Seattle. Out- I don't know if you know that. Oh, you do? I've, I've been in Seattle since I was 25 years old. Ah, such a cool place. Uh, I love Seattle. Um, yeah. And I, I kind of mapped it all out in my mind, mostly the decision of coming out at that level. And I call it burning the ships, right? Of, I was like, am I really going to upload an MP3 of my whole struggle with alcohol? I mean, this is my deepest, darkest secret. Yeah. There's a couple pros and cons sheets have been made, Casey. And uh, so my first episode came out February 25th of 2015 with about uh, you know, five to six months of time away from alcohol and huge gamble, right? <laughs> to come out uh, on the podcast or, or in, with with not a lot of time away from alcohol. And that's okay. Like, I, I don't, who cares if I drank after that, right? The point was to create accountability and it worked. Here I am almost, almost uh, seven years approaching that number this September. So it worked. But I recall the first three months, Casey, going to bed, there were times where I, every night I was like, what the fudge did I just do? <laughs> yeah. Because nobody was listening, which was a good thing. I didn't want anybody to listen. Um, but there was still this voice of like, what are you doing? This is this is crazy. Uh, and then finally got an email from somebody about three weeks after my first episode came out and I was too afraid to read it. You know, the stigma, I thought it was going to be criticism and whatnot. I finally read it and it said, hey, cool. I'm, I'm also trying to quit drinking and and then, you know, the, the journey started. I, I learned so much about podcasting, about websites, uh, about communities. And, um, and of course, I had to stay sober at the same time. And as you mentioned, Casey, before I hit the record button, you know, doing these interviews, it's like built in accountability where I remember in the first hundred interviews, there would be days I'd go into the office, just not feeling it uh, or going to the, do the interview again, not really thinking about drinking, but I just wasn't into it. Uh, I just wasn't feeling good emotionally. 
And then I do this one hour interview with somebody else who was also trying to quit drinking or on the same path. And it was like sobriety fuel built yeah. in. So once yeah. a week I would have this intimate call with someone and we're doing it right now. Um, you know, after we finish these interviews, it's like, wow, okay. Like I'm, I'm good to go. I'm energized mm-hmm. for the day of the week. It's just such good recovery, sobriety fuel. Um, and here we are, uh, yeah, six years, six years later. And I, I took the last year off. I did 277 straight Mondays in a row. And then Odette filled in for me. She was the podcast for the last year. Then I came back on, on June 21st and it was so good to be back behind the mic. Uh, and, I, and Odette's also doing the interviews and a gentleman named Chris is doing interviews. So I think we got the best of, of all the worlds there. Uh, so it's really good to be here with you, Casey. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. No, that is so awesome. And I have to say there's so much in what you just said, but first of all, incredibly brave to start the podcast so quickly after you quit drinking. And like you said, it wasn't anonymous, which is amazing. I know so many people who have done something like start an Instagram account and start posting when they quit drinking for accountability, for connection. I know I've interviewed Claire Pooley and uh, Lotta Dan, who wrote Sober Diaries and Mrs. D is Going Without, and Belle Robertson, who wrote Tired of Thinking About Drinking. And they all started their blogs, you know, chronicling for accountability, for, you know, sort of talking through processing all their feelings in early sobriety, but they all did it anonymously. So, and I started this podcast. I'm a little over five years sober. I didn't start it until I was like four years sober. So, you know, good job to you because that's really, really brave. <laughs> Thank you, Casey. Uh, and I'll also tell you right now, I don't have it figured out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and you bet you're behind the first year of podcasting. I didn't know what I was talking about. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. That's okay. I was I was authentic about that. I, I feel like I was transparent about that. I made that statement many times. In fact, at any time in my journey, if if on my podcast, you hear me say, I've got it all figured out, you know, here are these sequential steps, just tune out. Because that's not true, <laughs> right? There's always something more to learn. There's no top of the mountain. And I feel that's built yeah. in by design. That's a good thing. And we're all simply helping each other uh, reach that internal wholeness without the external substance. But it helps to know that you're not alone, that you're not the only one struggling about it, that people have quit and they're happier after it and that life doesn't end. I mean, I feel like that's what all of these conversations help people realize. Definitely, definitely. And, and I'm not walking back this path alone. And in fact, others have paved the way for us. You know, uh, many programs before me, Bill W. in 1935 mm-hmm. and Dr. Bob with AA, uh, you and I were simply uh, picking up where, where other programs have left off. And we see there's a niche where I'll, I love this program, but maybe there's, there's more opportunity in a different, a different area. And I, I love it when I hear there's a, a new sobriety podcast coming out because I think there's infinite space in this arena, in this niche for more projects, uh, for, for ditching a booze. Oh my gosh. Can we talk about perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause for a minute? I am 48. So if you're going through it, I'm right there with you. I mean, hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts, the low moods, the poor sleep. It is not cool. And that's why I was really excited to find a supplement called Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth. 
It contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like those super fun hormonal changes. It helps reduce menopause symptoms head on. And if you're interested in trying it, you can use the code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Women cannot stop raving about it on social media, but the biggest benefit is the simplest, feeling like yourself again. So if you're going through this, like I'm going through this, for a limited time, you can get 15% off your first order at happymammoth.com with promo code HELLO. That's happy, M-A-M-M-O-T-H.com. And use promo code HELLO for 15% off your first order. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about your story. People are listening to this and they're not you know, familiar with your path and, and why you stopped drinking, why you gave it up, and how that you know, sort of came to fruition for you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll give you the deets about me right now. I'm 39. I live in Bozeman, Montana. I've got a, an incredible standard poodle named Ben. For fun, we like to get outside and get outside and get outside again. Uh, I got a camper on my truck. We just, uh, we do a lot of physical exercise outside in nature. And I think nature is so beneficial to my own recovery. My nervous system likes to be in nature. I just feel that calm, right? Sunsets, waterfalls, all that stuff. It's what we love to do. And uh, I was born in Utah, moved to Colorado at age 12. And I was a normal drinker till about the age of 21. And like many people on my podcast, uh, I, when I hear the stories of their of the first drink experience, it was like this, wow, okay, this is it. Me and you, alcohol, we are going to forge a fantastic friendship. And we're going to kick a lot of ass in life. And that was the truth. We did that for, for about five to seven years. Um, and then when I was 22, right after I graduated college, uh, I studied abroad in college in Granada, Spain. And then I went back the summer after that, and I started a pub crawl, which is like a tour of the nightlife. Oh, I played rugby in college, so I am very, very familiar with pub crawls. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's definitely a drinking sport. Um, and so I went back and started my own pub crawl in, in Granada, Spain, and we were having like 70 people a night. We'd go Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, about 70 people per night at 10 euros a head for a whole summer. I mean, it was our job to just get blasted and uh, and the weekend or when we weren't working, we'd rent a car and like drive around Spain and we drove to Portugal. Incredible. One of the best summers of my life. And so I wanted to keep that going. I went home, uh, graduated college, then I moved home, saved up a bunch of money and I bought half of the bar with a Spaniard in Granada, Spain. And that was the best and worst time of my life, Casey. The, the best times as you can think of. It was my job to party and I was in a different country, all the people I, I met. But on the flip side, uh, I was becoming dependent on alcohol. And in fact, this was my routine the last year where I would instinctually, intuitively wake up at 5.59 a.m. I'd walk downstairs to the convenience store that opens up at six. I'd get a box of wine and I would get two cans of beer. I'd come back. I'd microwave the beer because you can drink warm beer faster. And while the beer was microwaving, I would chug the wine. And then I would go back to bed till probably 2 or 2.30 p.m. and do that every day. But that was after I blacked out the night before, right? So daily, I'm throwing down probably 20 to 40 drinks. It just depends on the day. And the loneliness and isolation of that was really intense. Um, I used alcohol used to give me that external connection, but then I crossed a barrier with it where all I wanted to do was be by myself and drink alone. 
Um, and if you're overseas and doing that, that's dangerous. And, and there was a time when I blacked out for almost, it was like a two and a half or three day blackout. And I, I did like four or five ambience at once. And, uh, and the anxiety was so intense, Casey, that I recognized, look, if I stay in this environment, it's an important word, then I'm probably not going to survive it. Um, and I walked away from that bar at age 27, very smart thing, incredibly humbled, I uh, thought the thought the thought the drinking would stay on that side of the Atlantic. In fact, I had audible hallucinations for about three weeks. It was the Braveheart soundtrack. It could be worse, um, but in my withdrawals, I had audible hallucinations. I was hearing things that weren't accurately there. Thankfully, it was the London Symphony Orchestra, and it was a beautiful audio, audible hallucination. Wow. I kid you not. I'd be in the grocery store, and I would hear it. I hear the soundtrack playing. Were you scared during this time? I mean, it sounds really scary. I was terrified. Terrified. Yeah. Cause yeah. I would, I would, I'm like, Oh, my phone's playing music. And I would go through bags and look in the car and be like, uh, uh Oh, <laughs> something's going on here within three weeks. You know, I did some research, Dr. Google, let me know that those symptoms should dissipate. And they did, <laughs> you know, and then I went to grad school in Seattle at UW. Love that place. Oh, you're kidding. I, yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I, went, I got a leadership degree and uh, I, on January 1st, 2010, I quit drinking for two and a half years and it was mostly on willpower, but it was also it were removing alcohol alone just made so much stuff better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, but at the end of that two and a half years, if you're not doing anything and I'm going to say recovery work, if you don't have a community of people who also don't drink, then you're living life as a sacrifice. I was doing everything. I just wasn't drinking and that gets tiring. <laughs> and then in 2012, I went to an AA meeting to support somebody else. And in that meeting, I was focusing on the differences, not the similarities. And I heard all these stories of things that hadn't happened to me, bankruptcy, DUI, job loss. Uh, Somebody had killed somebody with their car in that meeting and had done prison time. And I walked out and said, "Woohoo! I don't have a drinking problem. What the hell was I doing these last two years without drinking? (laughs) Oh, so it actually like convinced you. You were like, oh, oh, just kidding. I can drink again. Like fully, fully. Fully believed it. And that's that crazy voice in your head, right? Absolutely. Where it's like, well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these people have a problem. Yep. I'm cool. You got it, Casey. And I drank the, the same day or maybe two days later. And then I ended up on my computer at 2.30 in the morning, Googling if I could drink rubbing alcohol or hydrogen peroxide after having drank all the alcohol in the house. Right. I, I drank my roommate's bottle of champagne that was from his wedding. <laughs> you, oh, oh, no. you know, I woke up the next day. I was like, holy shit, what the hell happened last night? And then, uh, so I recognized, okay, I, I, I was on the right path, alcohol and me. We don't, that's not a good thing. Uh, and then I got 10 months away from alcohol, then four, then two, and then three. But I always told myself, you know, I've, I've done it. I did it for two and a half years. I'll, I'll get yeah. it again. But then in the summer of 14, Casey, the, it got scary because that's when the hopelessness arrived or, or the hope left, right? Um, it was like, oh shit, I've been on day one for 60 days here and I've been really trying to quit drinking. I don't yeah. know if I'm going to get this. And my heart goes out to everybody listening. And I see it in my community when you're on that 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 hamster wheel of addiction, the day ones, and there's part of you that says, uh-oh, like, uh, yeah, this is, we're not going to get this. My message is something will stick. Keep building momentum. Keep putting energy around your alcohol-free life. And eventually it's going to stick. Just keep going. But I remember that feeling. And one night, that's when I had that failed suicide attempt. Um, it didn't work. Thankfully, 
and 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 shit got real that summer. I DJed a wedding drunk. I was working, and I yeah, I knew I wasn't going to finish that wedding. And a DJ stepped in for me, um, made the decision to go to treatment that night. I did not, um, but something was different. The next day when I woke up, I hit such a moment, such an emotional rock bottom, and such a tremendous moment of I give up. Like <laughs> I can't do this. I can't think myself out of this. That the next day there was something different. It was space, and I recall. I recall that wasn't my sobriety date. It was about six days before, but I remember that morning the next day I heard the birds and the birds is something that I hadn't heard, heard for a couple decades. You know, you, when you're a kid, you hear the birds, you hear the crickets, you all hear all these things in your environment. You're more attuned. Yeah. My, my last drink was six days after that. I went camping with some friends and I drank half of a beer and I, I dumped it out knowing that if I, if I drank the rest of that beer, probably wouldn't survive. Just, you know, life was going to look a lot different. So I dumped it out and I left. You know, of course, that's not fun either, right? To leave a camping trip with friends. and But it just had to happen. So that, that was yeah. it. And that was September 7, 2014. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I cannot believe how fast this year is flying by. We're all busy. But one of the most important things you can do to make sure you're on the right path is to carve out some time to celebrate your victories and to notice what you've wanted to change but haven't been able to yet. Whether you're navigating sobriety, setting boundaries, or striving to be the best version of yourself, therapy can be a game changer. Therapy is for anyone looking for growth and support. And if you're considering it, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's convenient, it's flexible, and it's entirely online. So take a moment for yourself and visit betterhelp.com forward slash someday to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash someday. And I love how you talked about how you had quit drinking for two and a half years. I did a very similar thing. I stopped for a year and then sort of was like, you know, the second half of the year doing the like slow shuffle back, like kind of like, just kidding. It was just a stressful time. You know, I'm better now. I've got it together. Um, But you mentioned that if you don't have a community around you or other people on the alcohol-free path or you know, other people who kind of get this, that alcohol shouldn't be totally glamorized and is completely harmless and all those stuff. You said something like you're just going without, but I didn't have the right words. I didn't capture exactly what you said. Yeah. And what I I didn't quite know at the time was that I was using alcohol as a way to pacify or to make myself feel better internally based off, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, past trauma or just feelings of loneliness, right? And so if those if those internal issues aren't addressed, you know, the root cause of those inner discomforts aren't addressed, then it's oh, it's only a matter of time before A, you start drinking again, or B, you pick something else up. Like you, I call it addiction whack-a-mole as you quit drinking, but then oh, I'll meet ice cream every night, or oh, now I'm doing online shopping or smoking or anything like that. And so yeah, it got it got painful. After a couple of years, it's like, I'm not drinking, but my goodness, there's some rough days in here. Yeah. For me, it was anxiety and like security and all the, you know, people pleasing, perfectionism, all the stuff. Like, what did you 
feel like came up for you when you kind of got rid of the alcohol and then had everything left? Sure. It was like this intense feeling of disconnection, right? Where I was hanging out with the same people, was going to my fantasy football drafts and just not drinking, right? Um, and it's not like I'm reaching that same level of consciousness with that alcohol. What's, what's happening is I'm not lowering my consciousness to the same level of everybody else in the room. Yeah, it, it, it was challenging. It was, it was just like something's missing. And it was, it was like, this is a big sacrifice where when you're in the recovery world or doing this work, um, you start to see like, oh, without alcohol, there's tremendous opportunities in front of me travel, hobbies, life, relationships, you, you name it, you can be present for any of those things. But when you just remove alcohol and the term for it's dry drunk, like in the rooms of, of 12 steps, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're just not drinking and, and life can be worse. It can be harder because you're, you're going through all this stuff at face value without the tranquilizer, without the sedative, without the yeah. self-medicating. And we hear that word self-medicating and it's, it's not bad. Like I, I used to beat myself up a lot for, for the drinking that I did, but it's, I flipped it. It's like, nice job, Paul. You found a way to survive. Like you, you made it through some really dark, difficult and dark times and some of it in childhood or, or, or high school and you found a way to do it. Right. And it's not sustainable anymore in my thirties and late thirties. It's not sustainable. I need to find other healthier modalities, yoga, meditation, community. Um, this yeah, like works now. until it doesn't. Right. For sure. Yeah. And I think a lot of people reach the moment where alcohol, it stops working. Um, you know, scientifically, there's a lot of reasons for that, but it's, it not only does it start stop working, but it kind of backfires. What used to be your best friend, it just doesn't work anymore. And then there's this frustration. You try to double down on it, try to hide it more. And like the gig is, is slowly coming to an end. Yeah. Well, and I've heard you say, which I think is really interesting that, you know, drinking is but a symptom. And you said that you think other people are like, it's genetic, mostly genetic, partially environment, and that you think it's the opposite. It's like 70 or 80% environment and like 20 or 30% genetic. Can you talk about that a little bit? For sure. Great question, Casey. And I encourage listeners to do their own research and, and figure this out on their own, but I've switched my tune almost fully in the first, you know, maybe hundred or so episodes. You'll hear me say, uh, that the, the disease model that's genetic right today. Um, I'd even flip it hundred zero. It's all environmental. Yeah. I can you know, I hear a lot of, you know, obviously there are a lot of people with alcoholism or problematic drinking or whatever in their family. In my family, I had none of that. You know, my parents, sure had wine, but didn't have drinking issues at all, could take it or leave it. My sister, like I used to go over to her house when she had newborns and she was a member of a wine club and there was literally just bottles of wine in her wine rack with like, she'd kill me, just like half an inch of dust on top. And I was like, how the fuck does this happen? Like if there was wine, it would be God, you know? So, you know, for me, it wasn't really genetic. There's nothing in my family. There is anxiety. There is isolation. There are all those things. It was just, yeah, environment coping. I mean, I joined the rugby team in college where binge drinking is like a sport to be developed and celebrated, you know, all those things. So scientists have, have fully mapped out the, the genome and uh, they have not found the addiction gene or the alcohol drinking gene. They also haven't found the gambling gene or uh, the overspending gene. Um, or the smoking gene. I mean, just because those genes don't exist, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I am a believer 
uh, some of those things that would it's, it's generational trauma passed down. These are learned energies that are passed down. Uh, these are energetic systems within families that keep replicating, that keep presenting themselves over and over and over until somebody breaks the cycle in the family. This is like healing generational trauma. That's interesting, fascinating mm-hmm. stuff. But mostly, I, I, I feel these are all environmental. So, doctor, and this is a lot of Doctor Gaber Mate's thing is debunking the genetic myth. Um, and he's got a line that says most anthropologists agree that addiction is a modern phenomenon. Um, there are references to addiction in the Bible, but uh, in, 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 in in times in the past. But in 2020, we are living in an environment that is not conducive to inner wholeness without external substance. In fact, capitalism promotes buying everything external for internal wholeness. And in, in fact, I think the way we are currently living right now is, is, is actually insane. The way we've labeled it as normal. It's insane because it's, it's not conducive to inner wholeness uh, diseases. Uh, well, I'll go back We're, we just came out of a pandemic, but the, the, the true pandemic of mental illness, anxiety, depression, addiction will emerge at the forefront when this one, with, when this one fades away, because we are seeing unprecedented rates of all these illnesses the diseases and things like that. And, you know, Native Americans 300 years ago or 400 years ago, these ancient cultures, none of them have the rates of cancer, autoimmune disorders, uh, addictions, anxiety, depression. They just, it just wasn't a thing. Right. And we have the same genetics that are, those people had, we we're ancestors from them. They were living in an environment that was more conducive to wholeness. There was more connection. Johan Hari has a line in his TED, his Ted talk, um, it's the opposite of addiction is connection, right? We are so disconnected from a ourselves internally when we're, when we're disconnected internally, um, the external view, which is an exploded view of our internal environment. We're going to, we're experiencing disconnection outside externally. So we need that alcohol drug or whatever. Um, it could be a spouse. You could be addicted to your spouse. We need that external addiction or external substance, whatever to feel better internally. And that's okay. We all have to, we're, we're, this is all going to come around and everybody has to deal with this, not just people who are addicted to substances. Um, it's exciting work. I, it also, what motivates me to do what I'm doing to rally my community together. And what you're doing is because as the Buddha says, we all have to make this, this river crossing of consciousness. We all have to do this, whether there's an addiction or not. Um, hum, human beings are, we're, we're almost at a tipping point. <laughs> with, with, with our species. And we don't have to fix the earth. We hear a lot about climate change and global warming, and we don't have to fix the earth. We have to fix ourselves. Um, the earth is going to be just fine after we leave. Um, we, we, we've got a lot of inner work to do. And, and I, and I think addiction is something that does serve a purpose. Uh, it's called the endowment theory in biology is nothing exists if it doesn't serve a purpose. And addiction is something that's almost hitting the pause the pause button and saying, all right, wait a second. There's parts of your personality, your life, society, culture that are way out of balance. And, and this is how it manifests itself in the external world. And so um, addictions aren't a bad thing, nor are they depressions. They're, they're simply indicators to say, all right, Paul, the way you're living your life is not working. Uh, we need to make some intense changes. So uh, as I previously labeled, my addiction is bad. I don't label it that way. It was, it was just such a strong signpost uh, that I had no choice but to listen. So, no, I feel you on that because, you know, I'm always like when I was drinking, I was kind of treading water in this kind of like just okay, kind of shitty, sometimes good life, even though I had like husbands, kids, jobs, friends, you know, all the things. But, you know, I also had this sort of like underlying anxiety and wasn't doing what I desperately wanted to do and all the things. But drinking kind of let me numb out enough to tolerate it. And then when it got to the point where, 
I was drinking and, and shaking in the mornings and hung over and worried about my mental health, you know, kind of like you, I sort of had to stop. I felt pretty doomed. I was like, I'm going to fuck up my life and it's going to be my fault. And then if I hadn't, you know, like you said, if it hadn't gotten so bad that you were like, oh, this sucks, I have to give it up. I never would have done all the work on the underlying stuff that now makes life so much better and more content and happier. Yeah, I like how you said that. You never would have done the work on the underlying stuff, which now results in a life with so much more contentness and you're happier. And so I, I do feel is we are we are a lucky group here that is forced. Our pain moments reach such a climax that we have no choice. We are forced to do this yeah. inner work, right? Um, and we've previously put ourselves in the back of the societal queue, labeled ourselves as you know, morally yeah, we, we've somewhere, something malfunction, but I actually think it's flipped. Um, I think we are the first ones, the first wave of humanity to really begin this intense work of inner work. Cause it's all inner work um, without a doubt. Yeah. Um, and the most importantly is we have to address our thinking and, uh, you know, a drinking is the one domino that has the potential to knock everything down, but it event eventually we have to address our thinking and we, we can't do that with alcohol in our life, but we have to address the thinking. And then a lot of this comes back to the identifying with the thinking mind. And usually when we have those intense, intense rock bottom moments, emotionally or physically or whatnot, it, the, the, the mind starts to question the I and the self. It's like, I can't live with myself like this more anymore. And then the I is like, well, who, who is the I? And then eventually a space enters. And this is, the, the moment of surrender, the moment of clarity that you hear that there's a gap, there's a space it says, I can't live like this anymore, but who is the I wait a second. And, and it just happens like something flips internally. Uh, it's, it's really a magical thing that addiction, again, that serves a purpose that can do for so many people is it flips it. Um, it almost opens up this spiritual dimension for so many people. I was, I was spiritually dead before, before the addiction. I love, I've heard you say, which I wrote down because it was so good, that alcohol kills you in this order, spiritually, mentally, and physically, and you heal in the reverse order, physically, mentally, and then spiritually. Can you talk about that? Because, you know, when you stop drinking, you immediately, I mean, within a month, you're, you start, you know, you start sleeping better, your, you know, deep sort of depression, anxiety starts to lift there's shit underneath there of course you're less bloated your skin looks better your eyes look better i mean it it improves over time but feeling physically better after the first 3 weeks happens but then mentally you know and spiritually like how does that order work for you okay yeah i'm glad you brought that up and again it kills you spiritually mentally and physically and then in reverse order is the healing process when you remove, remove that toxin um, which if you drink enough, if it, it will kill you in one sitting, in one setting. Physically, you're going to start feeling a lot better. And that's how I lasted two and a half years. Physically, I was like, oh, I, I can run. I did a I did a ridge race, like a 20, whatever, five mile run. And I, I really got into fitness. And, and then with the healing part, the mental component, which is huge, anxiety was a crusher for me. And in case you said it was the same for you as well, my solar plexus would just get destroyed with anxiety, right? And so without alcohol, I was able to learn breath work and how to build the circuitry in those certain areas of the body. And I still have anxiety today, but I don't feel it in my solar plexus. 
I feel a little bit in my chest, but it's so much bearable. It's so much more bearable. It's, it's okay. I can deal with it. And some anxiety is healthy, right? It's an indicator that something in our environment is a threat. And then the last component of it, um, around April of 2018, there was a spiritual dimension that opened up in my life. And I'm not going to say a religious dimension. I'm going to say a spiritual dimension because they're two different things. And, and this is more of the, the deeper connection, right? And that was exploring the soul. Like what the hell is a soul? We have chakras. What is, what is the stuff? Are there things as past lives? Are there things as, is this one and done? And it really wasn't by choice, me going down this pathway. It just sort of happened. In fact, I met, I met with an astrologist later that year of 18, and I had an intense moment on April 13th or 14th. They would think it was the 13th. Um, but the astrologist, like three months later, was like, whoa, on April 13th, you began your spiritual pathway. I was like, what? How does, how does this person know? <laughs> right? So there's something else going on there. And I've had several moments in the last couple of years of you know, deja vu of, of things Again, there's some effervescence about it. It's hard to explain, but I think the spirituality component of this or feeling a deeper connection to the world is the home run, the holy grail of the point of an addiction. And it's this deep connection to the sun, to the, to the earth, to the moon, to the water, to the food, to the people, to the rotation of the planets and the stars and the universe, um, to other people. But the deep connection, most importantly to myself, is what opens up that's the last phase of healing. And again, there's no top of the mountain. I, I can't tell you, Casey, that I've checked all the boxes and I don't want to. I'm so excited to see where this is going. In fact, on, on my spiritual journey, I was <laughs> I found out why I'm allergic to horses, Casey. It was because uh <laughs> it's because in a past life, my name was Pablo de Tarso and I was blinded in a horse riding accident. <laughs> And I kid you not. I <laughs> okay, was, that is the most interesting thing I've heard from a guest on this podcast. Like you just won. I was at a. I was. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I was at a <laughs> Joe Dispenza cruise, and within like fifteen minutes of this conversation with people I had just met, this gal holds up her hand. She's like, "Hold on." She whispers something to her husband. This is in Spanish, by the way. This couple was from Mexico City, and her husband goes, "Hey, my wife, my wife just uh, got one of your past lives. Would you like to hear it?" And all this stuff is new to me, Casey. I'm like, uh, yeah, this ought to be good. And she, again, says, this is why you're allergic to horses. And she has no idea that I am definitely allergic to horses. And my name's Paul. My nephew calls me Uncle Pablo. It was just this really intense, strange moment. Um, and I've had several of those happen over and over and over in the last couple of years to leave me really no doubt that there's there's something there's something beautiful going on behind the scenes. And and through a series of, of these statements as in, you know, you have to have hard to know the soft, you have to have the sound to know the silence, you have to have the black to know the white, you have to have the walls, the empty, have the empty space, you have to have the form, the world, the physical world, the earth to have the emptiness, which is God. And it's just so beautiful of how that plans out, or how that plays out or how, how much more I'm open to it these days and mm -hmm. how I feel guided by it. And I don't have to fig have it all figured out, Casey. I, I really don't. It's okay. Yeah. No, that's amazing. And I know that you, it sounds like, have a much more in-depth and involved sort of daily practice. You talk about meditation and connecting with nature and, you know, movement. And, you know, that's amazing. Like, what does your kind of recovery health practices kind of look like? Do you have a routine or something that you try to touch on every week? Yeah, I've actually take an emphasis off the routine is in terms of check boxes and the timing of mm -hmm. it. I still meditate. I still do exercise. And I, I go to like an AA meeting a week. 
I do a lot of our own cafe already meetings weekly, but, uh, before there was almost this rigidity. It's like, okay, I did like the 5 a.m. miracle morning for a while and good stuff, but I really don't even wake up to an alarm clock anymore. There's not this set rigidity because what I found, this is for me personally, that if I didn't wake up at a certain time, meditate for a certain amount of certain time length, you know, stretch yoga, then I wouldn't feel good about myself. And that's also, that's conditional love within myself. I had to do X, Y, and Z at a certain amount of time to, to be okay with myself. And so really the beginning of COVID last year, I started to challenge that. Um, and I didn't, I would just meditate and I did not for a certain amount of time. I would just sit there. Sometimes it lasted two minutes. Sometimes it lasted 45 minutes. So I do still have these, these routines and routines and and what I do and meditation and yoga and community work is huge. I, I get out in nature almost every day, right before this call, I was with my dog, um, walking, walking through the pine forest outside of Bozeman, Montana. But what I've done, I've, I've taken the rigidity and the structure out of it uh, and the conditional part where it's like, man, we, we can't be relaxed unless we meditate today or we, unless we do this and that. It's all still there, but it's, it's organically happening, I guess, which is good because I've done it enough time before that those habits are, are now becoming unconscious. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's like your recovery evolves, right? Your practices of what you need in your first couple of months and your first couple of years change over time as you kind of learn more. Yeah. Great to say that. And I did need that my first couple of years of the, the structure. Um, I did a miracle morning for, I think a year, over a year. So you wake up at 5.00 AM and do like every 10 minutes you do something. It was great. It was fun. Um, but where I'm at now, it's more relaxed. It's more, it's, it's less structured and there's, mm-hmm. there's more acceptance to it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. Cause I was, you know, I kind of feel bad. I feel like everyone I talk to has this awesome morning routine, which I don't, you know, I have two kids. I get up. I love my coffee. I love being sort of alone in my home when everybody else is asleep, work out sometimes, but my more sort of decompressing is I love sitting on my front porch in the sunshine and like laying down on my back and just kind of chilling for like 10 minute breaks whenever I can, or I love vegetable gardening. So I go out there and like eat the strawberries and do a little weeding and, you know, that just the little things are kind of bigger to me. I don't have a big structure. Yeah. Like I said, the coffee thing too. I was looking at Casey's website before and she has, a, <laughs> she has the line that said, it's like, I love my coffee, something that I'm not willing to kick you know, and yeah, I have a serious coffee habit. I'm not yeah. willing to care. Yeah. And you know, when you, when you quit drinking, there's a line of, you know, like how far do you want to go? Right. And I love my coffee too. I went a couple months without coffee and I said, I, I like coffee. It's a good routine. It's a good ritual. I like the smell of it. I think coffee is a plant medicine. It's a natural stimulant. We need to be careful with stimulants, but uh, yeah, I, I like it. And coffee's not ruining my life. Like alcohol did <laughs> not even close. I'm totally cool with that. Yeah. I I don't know if it's, if it's you, but I've seen, we always make jokes with a bunch of my girlfriends who all quit drinking that like more is more like right now I'm looking over my desk and I have like three different beverage cups. Like we're always like double fisting with like, you know, your LaCroix, your water, your coffee, your whatever. And I'm just like, Oh, maybe it wasn't just alcohol. Like I remember I went to go see friend's parents up on the San Juan Islands, since you know this area uh, for a long weekend up in Friday Harbor. And it was like after I quit drinking and I brought a freaking roller, like mini suitcase of Alt-Bebs, you know, non-alcoholic beverages, like all of them. And my girlfriend was like, what the fuck are you doing? Like we have beverages in the house. Like there's a grocery store up there. And I'm like, 
no, you know, in my mind, I was like, I got to have my stash. I got to have enough, you know, of like all my non-alcoholic beverages. And I was like, maybe it's, just, maybe it's just me, you know? I have such a reverence for, for people who quit drinking or struggle with addiction because there is, I feel like a, a sub-personality trait is where we go big. We do. Yeah. And I, and I think it all goes back to the dopamine systems in our brain as we are wired to experience pleasure and joy uh, differently. Everybody experiences pleasure and joy differently, but I think we feel it more intensely. We feel the highs higher and the lows lower. I've got a coffee cup there. I've got, I've, this is my favorite cup. And inside of it, there's two lemon wedges and basil and filtered water. And yeah, like I have fun with that for sure. I like how you said that. That's funny. Yeah. And we don't want to feel deprived, right? Like I'm always like, no, I need plenty. More is better. Yeah. 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 What, what's your favorite alcohol-free beverage, Casey? I actually am a huge fan of non-alcoholic beer. I know a lot of people like like it, don't like it. I was a red wine girl, so it's not triggering to me, but I really like Athletic Brewing Company. Like they're the best one I found and I like Partake IPA. So for me, I didn't actually drink non-alcoholic beer for my first three years. Um, I just, you know, had it in my head that that was bad. And so I was big on like, LaCroix and tea and, you know, sparkling grapefruit, but I picked it up and I was like, oh, it's the alcohol that's bad, not the flavor. And so for me, I really enjoy that. Like I'm going camping this weekend. And so I'm going to bring my stash. But in the beginning, it was, it you know, when I was taking my roller suitcase up to the San Juan Islands, it was like six different kinds of like sparkling water, LaCroix, tea, because I knew they were going to like lay out the nice table with bottles of wine, we'd all be sitting around. And I was like, you know, in my mind, like, I don't want just tap water. Like that is, you know, to me, like deprivation, like I want something special. Yeah, (laughs) go get it. I love it. (laughs) There's so many more options these days. What's your take on non-alcoholic beer? Because I know that some people are like, ooh, not good. And some people are like, no problem. Okay. There's a couple areas to go with that. If somebody else is telling you how to do your alcohol-free journey, um, that's, that's deflection, right? That's defection. So don't listen to that from other people, right? You're the, I mean, if there's pointers, right. If maybe they have good information, but yeah, I've done a couple episodes on this and it is somewhat of a controversial topic in AA or whatnot, or just the recovery world. I like the true zero zeros, right. And mm-hmm. I love how Heineken came out with that one. And there's, there's more zero zeros. And I think they're all going to be zeros, uh, which means there's not 0.5, you know, it, an NA beer five years ago, it's pretty much, they all had a little bit of alcohol. And I've heard stories of spouses or saying, you know, you can only have NA beer in the house. Well, I met this guy one time that was drinking 30 NA beers in his garage every night. <laughs> you can see the, uh, the issue with that, right? Um, you know, same thing with kombucha that falls in that same category as well. I, I personally don't like the taste of NA beers. So I just think there's other things to try, but I've had them before in the past. They're not triggering. I can't drink more than one. So I never get a buzz or any of that. Um, but yeah, I think if you're okay with it on an individual level, green light on that, I would recommend staying away for the first two to three to four months. Like you said, Cause you're right. What happens if you have two or three and there's just like a slight buzz going on there. But, uh, I think they're for the most part benign, definitely play it safe for the first couple months. I love again, how most, uh, there's a lot true zeros or where it is, where it needs to go. The true zeros. Um, yeah. 
And one thing I wanted to talk to you about, because I've heard you talk about it, I found it super interesting that you had surveyed the, the recovery elevator audience and sort of the old standard beliefs that, you know, people who drink too much or have issues with alcohol are sort of, you know, hitting rock bottom or certain persona aren't true because a lot of your audience is highly educated, financially stable with marriages, with friends, which was sort of my experience. You know what I mean? Like I was drinking a bottle plus of wine a night, but everything on the outside looked really good. I was still functioning. It was just really hard to do it. Like I was making it really hard on myself. So tell me about, you know, what you see in your community. Yeah. And and this is with, with my listeners, with my audience. And I imagine you've already seen the same and seeing the same as it's actually flipped what you think an alcoholic would look like. Right. Um, and I've done this exercise at schools where I put that word on the board and, you know, write down what words come to mind with the stigma. And studies show only 5% of alcoholics fit that bill, right? Homeless, brown bag, living under a bridge. Really? Only 5%? Only, only actually about four, four, like four and a half, whatever. Very, very few. Um, and as we were commenting earlier, we go big. We are a population who goes big in everything we do. We fully give our attention, our energy to whatever we do. And so what I found with, with our audience is not only are we keeping up with the Joneses or like, you know, we're average, like we make the average amount of money where we, we make way more money than the average American. And we are more educated than the average American. We're in more relationships than the average American. I mean, it's, it's crazy, but we've got this one thing that's, that's holding us back. And, and I believe these addictions represent part of our personalities that are out of balance. So there's just one thing. We're not totally flawed across the whole board. There's just like one thing. Maybe it's where we were abandoned as a child and we really struggle with that. And it's such a pain, a, a pain moment, a pain point in our lives that we need alcohol to make ourselves feel better for just that one area. So when we address these areas of discomfort, again, the source and removing alcohol is the start, just the start, you know, then we really can hit a home run in life. It's, it's incredible to see the transformations that people that have that happen in people's lives. And I know this is what, why you continue to do this work because that's the most rewarding part. Like, yeah, you charge money for your courses and so do I, but once you see people get it, like the light bulb goes off, that's all the payment that I need. And then to see that person go on and start their own podcast or start their own program or just talk with somebody else and their family, that's like it, it's infinite. <laughs> so it's so I cool. I hear all the time how someone stopped drinking and told someone else about it, not even their whole story, just like, yeah, I actually stopped and I feel better and my anxiety's down, and it's not, you know, my life didn't end, I still have fun. And then that it like starts this chain of people being like, really, I, you know, basically, I couldn't imagine it, or I've tried, or I wonder, and you just kind of inspire people one by one by one, by telling people that like, what society tells you about alcohol is required for every social interaction and to have fun and to connect and to decompress, like you actually don't need it. And it's even better. Here's I love what you said there. I agree hundred percent. Here's the neat thing with it. So spiritually we're, we're all connected. In fact, one of the biggest illusions is that we're separate. We live in a non-dual world, just the way it's set up, structured. Everything is perceived to be different. We touch things, it's different, right? But actually, we're, we're all connected. 
So uh, I interviewed a guy named Dusty, I think 204 on my podcast, Recovery Elevator. He's one of my really good friends. He quit drinking um, and he doesn't, he didn't have a lot of contact with his family at that moment. And within a year, I think three other members in his family also quit drinking and had no idea that Dusty quit drinking. And this comes from a long line of alcoholics. Again, energy that is passed down generation, generationally learned behaviors. So it's incredible how when one person can make that choice, how energetically the rest of the family will all pick up on it. It doesn't mean they're all going to quit drinking, but they're all going to recognize that something has been broken in this cycle throughout the norm. And I've heard those stories all the time. It's, it's so incredible to hear. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we were talking about with your demographics of your audience, because I see that uh, as well with mine, like a lot of the women who listen to this are sort of corporate working moms or have graduate degrees or, you know, are doing all the things. They're just drinking and hungover and struggling with that. And yet they are lawyers and judges and doctors and, you know, everything else. And they always say like, why can't I drink like everybody else? Why can't I be a normal drinker? And the truth is from your experience, from my experience, like you really don't know what anyone else's relationship with alcohol is like, you know, yes, they might have two or three drinks out with you at happy hour, but I would do that. And then I would come home and open a bottle after and drink the whole bottle after I'd had two out, or I'd be going to a party and have two glasses of wine while I was doing my makeup and waiting for my husband to get home from work. Like what you see isn't always what you get. And I think so many more of us have problematic relationships with alcohol and drink more than others think we do than you would ever know. That's a great point, right? Why can't I drink like everybody else? That's flawed because we don't know how everybody else is drinking and and there's a massive gray area with this um yeah. the thinking mind loves check boxes black and white that's that's a tiger that's a cat right we we the thinking mind loves to compartmentalize things so when we say the rest of the people the normal drinkers you're right there's probably half of those that could easily fall into that you know, abusive category with alcohol but i do want to i do want to answer that question too is you know why can't we go back to drinking normally. There's a couple of reasons yeah. for that. This is what I have found. Part of it is there, there are some changes in the brain and binge drinking is the cause of that. With, they're called THIQs that are deposited in the brain. This is when we take a long time off alcohol and we drink, we pick right up where we left off. And this is an irreversible brain change. This is one of the only things that you cannot reverse with drinking that I have found. And that's, that's, I have no complaints with that. Um, I don't want to drink again, knowing that'll happen. I don't, I don't want to ramp up phase again. I, it's nice to know there's actually comfort knowing that if I drink, it's just, it's a dumpster fire instantly. Well, so that's really interesting because people say like, I, you, you know, I hear this all the time from women, like 20 years ago, I drank two glasses and it was fine. How do I get back to that? And you're saying that the intervening 15 years of drinking way more and way more often has taken you to a point that no amount of willpower will bring you back to the two glasses twice a week sort of level. Correct. Yeah. And, and that's mostly with binge drinking. If that's part of your story, um, that on and off switch is, has been like permanently, permanently altered. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. And another reason why you can't go back to drinking like a normal person in the long term, this is sustained. I've heard great stories of it working for a week, two weeks, or a couple months. 
It's because the thinking mind is a snapshot of the past. When we reach these difficult emotional moments in life, the thinking mind will scour everything that we've tried in the past to how to make this pain go away in this moment. And it's going to present the idea of what worked the best. That's always a bottle of wine or two Jack Daniels, whatever it was. So that idea is going to continually come up when life gets challenging. You and I both live on the same planet Earth without a spaceship. Um, life is challenging. It just happens regardless. You know, we, we have these things happen. So the thinking mind will come up with what has worked well in the past. And that's why I say, you know, the quit drinking, you have to step outside the comfort zone um, because your alcohol-free life is not within the realm uh, of what the mind has as a recollection of, of, of the past of what's worked. Cause it's always going to come up with alcohol or a big hitter like that. That's immediately going to make the anxiety or depression or whatnot go away. Yeah. And you have to be uncomfortable to kind of sit with those emotions when they come up and realize that they won't kill you or that you can survive or that they pass. But also what I liked you talked about earlier with your new practices is sort of developing new coping myths mechanisms, whether it's meditation or hiking or connecting with people and actually talking about your problems that are, will become more automatic, right? It'll imprint on your brain like, oh, that worked too. Yeah. I, I like how you said that. So it's, it's a lot about finding ways to regulate these intensive emotions with, with different modalities, right? And bless your heart. If you're in your first 30 days and I did the same where it's like ice cream, Reese's pieces, yeah, I mean that's that's harm reduction is a real is a is a real thing. But eventually, um, yeah, there, there's other ways to do it. Uh, I, I like to do it in group settings. I love retreats. I've been to uh, a couple, actually several meditation retreats. They've been a, a alcohol free retreats, right? We we put our own on, and it's I love doing this work with other people. And if you can yeah. do this work with other people in nature in a community setting, um, then you really start to. That's sobriety fuel for, for days. I love it. It's really good stuff. All right. I want to hear about your retreats. If you're willing, I've been on a couple, I I've gone on them with she yeah. recovers and actually during the pandemic three that I was signed up for got canceled, which were just devastating. I'm actually supposed to go in three weeks to salt spring Island, a yoga retreat with she recovers group where I like sleep in a yurt and we eat all this incredible food that's prepared for us and like lay in the hammock and nap. And of course, because the US Canada border is closed, it's canceled for the mm -hmm. second year in a row, which is killing me. But um, but they're so amazing and healing and lovely. Like it feels like I'm back at 15 years old at summer camp. So tell me about your retreats that you've done. Okay. I like how you said the word summer camp because behind the scenes, that's, that's what we try to replicate. We do have, we do have, uh, workshops such as yoga, journaling, meditation. We do breath work. Uh, we do a lot of sound healing with synthesizers and sound bowls and things like that. So we do have those traditional modalities. Um, but behind the scenes, the, the glue is we have one, we have one big thing in common that trumps age Trump's if you're male or female, Trump's background, that one thing in common is, is we, we want to quit drinking. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's, there's some major intense shared camaraderie with that. Uh, day one of these retreats, it's almost like a, we're at day seven of a, of a normal summer camp. It's like, Hey, I'm Paul. Hey, I'm, I'm Jim. What was your rock bottom moment? I mean, <laughs> we, we get, we get past the surface level conversation real quick. And we, we do it structured in a safe way. We break people off into groups of three, groups of five, groups of 10, give them prompts. Everybody shares their story on some of our retreats. Um, but we have, you know, we have an event in August. There's a hundred people, but 
you will find yourself in groups of four, groups of 10, um, these small, intimate, safe settings. So the magic again is people have one common thing. And most likely this goal of quitting drinking or the drinking problem is their deepest, darkest secret for a long time. And this energy has been wanting to expel itself from the human body, right? We, it's been, it's been wanting to come out. So you get a hundred people together with this desire to release this energy. It's like the monkey on the back and there's fun things and you're in nature. It's just the magic happens so fast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Cause it was all these women, clearly it was alcohol-free, drug-free retreat. And we all were sort of on a common path. I went for the first time when I was one year sober, but I know a lot of people were, you know, early days or wanting to, or, you know, a couple months in and, you know, sitting around, someone would bring out the guitar. We would sing, we had sharing circles, like literally felt like I was a kid again in like this amazing safe place with really cool women and just had deep conversations. And, you know, when I'm, you know, an adult and 40 years old with a husband and kids and a job like that just never happens, really rarely happens that you get to kind of experience that sort of contentment and joy and connection and, you know, your heart bursting. And what you described was a natural setting uh, a couple hundred years ago with societies and cultures would just naturally come around the campfire and play music. Um, many cultures still do this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's, that, that's, that's more of a natural way of living. And the way we're living today is, is, is out of alignment of how our species is supposed to be living. I mean, we, we are nature. We often remove ourselves from nature and we are, we are social animals yeah. that have isolated ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Well, I am so excited that you're coming back to Recovery Elevator, although I know Odette was awesome for the last year as well. And very cool that you guys are sort of continuing that as well. But like, if someone's listening to this, they want to connect with you. They want to learn more about what you do. Like, what do you want to share? For sure. Yeah. So it's recoveryelevator.com. We have a private community called Cafe RE. Uh, we put you in groups capped at 350 to in- ensure that intimacy. Closed, private, unsearchable groups. Uh, we pair you with accountability partners. We've got book club. we got movie club. We have about, uh, about 80 or 90 chats per month, uh, different titles, different themes, things like that. I'm real excited about our in-person meetups. We had to cancel a bunch because of COVID, but we have one this August in Bozeman. It sold out in a day. I'm so happy. But you can get on the wait list and people can still attend. We got an event in Denver, April 14th to the 17th, 2022. Uh, we should do a sober travel trip to Costa Rica January of next year, uh, India at the end of next year. Wow. Yeah, we're just going to keep going with uh, our, our live events. That's what really gets me pumped up to see these, to build these connections in person. Um, as I mentioned, I'm learning synthesizers, I didn't mention that yet, but uh, live music is going to be a big part of our events where the meditations, all the music is performed live. We all love live music. Um, there's more to that. I'm, I'm really digging into the science behind that of, of why the body reacts the, in certain ways with certain frequencies and certain energies. Um, and the body is all vibrating energy and it, it, there needs to be coherence. Just like when you tune a guitar, if you got a couple strings out of tune, it just doesn't sound right when you play that E chord, but you tune it right. And then it's got this beautiful strum. That's the same thing with the body. And when addictions take hold, there's part of us that's vibrating out of balance, out of coherence with the other, other part of the body. And, and that part of the body is, is really seeking that harmony, that coherence. And it's going to find any way to, to retune itself. Uh, and, we, and then we remove the alcohol. That stuff naturally happens. And sometimes you got to like help it out. But that's really what we're doing. Very cool. And you wrote a book, right? Alcohol is shit. 
<laughs> I did. Yeah. Alcohol is shit for sure. I stand behind that, but it's kind of a bait and switch because alcohol is shit. Of course I was duped by alcohol, but I'm so thankful for my addiction, yeah. Casey. And I say that in the book, like I, the, the lessons that I've learned from alcohol, the friends and people, the doors uh, that I, that I, that I opened up, I wouldn't change a thing. And I was talking to a friend the other day and part of my career right now is I have to go to Costa Rica, looking at hotels and restaurants for upcoming retreats. That's a good life, right? That's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes I got to stop and say, yeah. "Wow, this is this is neat. This is neat of what what's happening and and the possibilities when you remove alcohol. I mean, anything is possible." Very cool. Well, thank you so much for being here. I truly appreciate it, and it's been really awesome talking to you, Casey. I've done a lot of interviews. <laughs> They're not that easy. You're you're really talented and skilled and very very present. So thank you very much for for the good hour. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.